It's another Easton podcast. I'm here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson, and I'm George Tekbachev. This is number 40-something. We'll get Jay to plug something in like he did last time. <laughs> Big save there from Jay. Uh, we've got a bunch of questions from our lovely listeners, so we'll get to those in a short time. We've got a, a short interview with Bruce Cull talking about the uh, big event you've got coming up in Yankton um, shortly. Yeah. Leave tomorrow, so. Yeah, so timely. And um, let's just jump into it with uh, some good news. It seems like our good buddy Rod Menzer has got some new responsibilities at USA Archery. Yeah, just happened. He's going to be in charge of marketing. Yep. Which, uh, you know, it's it's going to be great to see a real professional running that aspect of that, I'm going to say that business, because it's, you know, you've got 22,000 members now. I mean, you got to be running like a business. You've got to treat it that way. I'm guessing they didn't grow a whole lot from when they had six, 7,000 members in terms of employees. So it's probably time to start uh, yeah. letting that reflect as much as the membership. And you know. words out now, we've known this for some time, but uh, it's official that Sanji, uh, Sanji Wu, uh, formerly of GBR, formerly of Mexico, and originally from Korea, will be the USA women's coach. Yeah. Which is a great move. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like anyone's throwing a fit, but I'm sure, you know, you'll hear the behind the scenes complaints. There's always someone complaining oh, whenever they hire uh, a coach, Yeah, well, you know? somebody, you know, on the usual in the usual suspect archery forums probably will be throwing stones, but uh then I didn't look there, but you you know, you always hear someone wanted so and so and now they're gonna, you know, Blah, blah, blah. But it seemed like the vast majority of people were very excited. So you know that uh, Ms. Wu is a medalist from the 2001 uh, Universiade and was one of the top Korean shooters uh, at that time and uh, has tremendous experience as a competitor. And she's had great success as a coach uh, helping to coach um, both uh, Ms. Avicia and Ida Roman to their success in London. She had an impossible choice, though, because those two girls came up against each other at the London Games, and uh, that that was a tough tough time because basically she thought she was going to be able to move between both shooters while they were alternating. The judge didn't allow it, so um, yeah, she mm. wasn't able to coach both shooters, but uh, she is a proven coach, uh, a lovely person, just a nice human being, and I think it's going to be a great fit. It's just going to be a matter of uh, finalizing some paperwork before she starts the job. So, yeah, a lot good. to be done there. But and and Rod's really excited. Easy. I talked to him on the phone the other day, and uh, he's he's really excited with the uh, new challenge he's got at USA Archery. Uh, he's still going to be running the point business, the pro points, and all that stuff. You know, still maintaining that business, but he's going to be working full time for USA Archery as well. So uh, that's going to be double duty. But if anybody can do it, it's our buddy Rod. No doubt. All right, we've got a lot of great Facebook questions. Thank you for uh, basically making the show for those of you who've taken the time to write into Easton Target Archery and uh, podcast at EastonTP.com. Um, we'll just jump right in. Starting with uh, Mr. Teng Wei from Malaysia, who says, no BS podcast, best archery education. Well, thank you. That was very kind. Would Easton ever consider doing a tour with your tight yearly schedule? Well, kind of, sort of. Steve's going to go to Japan in a couple of weeks and um, maybe a few more than that, about a month. I don't even know anymore. Okay. <laughs> You're still yeah, going. three, four weeks, something yeah. like that. And then, um, you know, I, I, I travel around doing seminars and stuff. So, yeah, it's possible that uh, we could find ourselves doing something in Malaysia if something gets organized. Yeah, I mean, um, we, I usually get to Europe once a year and do something there. And Yeah. Yeah, we'll be in Japan in a month and I could see maybe something around uh, the time of indoor world cup in uh, Bangkok. Maybe, maybe that there you would go. be an opportunity. Yeah, so, it could be. Uh, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, certainly when there's someone else who can present us with, you know, the, the framework and we can go help make something happen and work it around our schedule. That's the best way. But you know, that doesn't mean we can always make everything either. So yeah, we try. So, yeah. So uh, Tangway has this question, and he's got a, a Hoyt Podium X Elite 40 GTX. ATA is 40 and a half inches, brace height 8 inches. He's getting uh, 52 to 53 pounds. Limb bolt is maxed out. 
Now, I'm going to presume that uh, he was hoping to get more weight out of this thing because he's asking, how can he get a few more pounds out of this guy? Mm-hmm. Uh, we could put more stress on the bus cables, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you could shorten up the cables a little bit, but then you're going to throw off draw length. and Yeah. I, I don't concern myself a whole lot with ATA measurement or brace height measurement. Those are, you know, if you want to set the bow to factory specifications, that's what you need to follow. But uh, you don't have to shoot a bow at factory specifications either. So, I mean, by all means, that's where they are optimized and draw lengths are set and, and all of that stuff. And if you want to get the best performance, go with factory spec because they've, I promise you those engineers aren't leaving anything on the table. There's always people who say like, oh, I'll, uh, I will, uh, what was the popular term a couple years ago? It was uh, preload the limbs. I'll oh, yeah. preload the limbs and get more speed. No, you won't. Mm. I promise you. get more you, hysteresis you too. Yeah. and It all evens out. There's no free lunch. You, you run the risk of having limb issues. I mean, anytime you, I mean, when a, when a Hoyt bow is built, you know, those, those limbs have a, what is it, tensile and what's the other term? Compression. Yeah, compression. So, I mean, one side build, or one side crunches One side's up. optimized for one thing and one side's optimized for the other. Yeah, and one side crunches up. The other side essentially stretches yeah. to a point. So, yeah. they're only meant to go so far and you take them too far and you just may shorten the life of them. So, yeah. So, anyway. But I'm, I'm thinking what probably happened is maybe that bow was built with one size of cam and it got swapped to a different size of cam and that dropped the poundage and yada, yada. So, it, I mean, might be worth sending an email into Hoyt to see with the serial number to see what it was originally built as, what limb deflection it is and find out uh, what you're working with at least. Okay. So there's no quick and easy way to just add a few pounds. Well, if you, if you want, yeah, you can twist up the bus cables, but then you're, like I said, that'll affect other things. Yeah. You're increasing your draw. So you can do that. Um, and, and possibly at the expense of shootability slash, you know, uh, yeah. Forgiveness maybe, but then again, maybe it'll work better. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, maybe the thing is stretched out. It's Malaysia for goodness sake. It's a warm place. Yeah. Yeah, so get the bus cable, control cable the right length and and uh, check string length and go from there. All right. Uh, Chuck Cloud, what is your take on draw length? When he started shooting two years ago, he was put into a bow that was 29 inches. Recently, he attended a seminar from George Riles, Jr., or fourth, fourth rather. Yep. Griv. George Riles, fourth, Jr. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> anyway, George, uh, shout out to you if you're listening. Uh, and was measured at 31 inches. Needless to say, I've made changes to get into a 31-inch draw, which is wise if you've gone to George and George has actually measured you. I don't have that much experience to determine what feels right, though. Um, often what feels right isn't, um, I think might be true. I now have my podium and prevail set to 30 and a half and 31 respectively, and they both fit fine. Also, since I've made a change to my draw length, do I need to change arrows? My arrows are set up for a 29-inch draw. ACG 430s, 120 grain points, 30 and a half inch cut length, and 2712 full length with 300 grain points. Looking for a 2315 recipe. Was thinking 31 inches at 200 grains. Would that work? Hmm. Well, first to address the draw length question, I mean, I would probably take George's word for it because the guy's putting out a lot of junior shooters that have had success. So well, George has got 20 something yeah. years of experience. He yeah. knows what he's doing. Yeah, he's he's proven to be a better coach than the other guys at the shop. I don't know who they are, but I know that he's a better coach than those guys. All right. Um, yes, you'll you'll need to go a little stiffer on arrow spine if you're shooting 31 inches. This is assuming you're shooting in the neighborhood of 55 to 60 pounds. So an ACG 430 at that kind of a draw length is is going to be a little weak. Something. A little stiffer would be more ideal. Um, and the trouble is, if you cut down that point weight, you're actually going to make the sh- the shank of the point shorter. Yeah, you're going to be chasing your tail. That won't help. Yeah. Um, in terms of twenty seven twelves, full length is going to be a little wonky. I think a little hard to get. I think a two hundred well. grain instead of a three hundred grain point. Uh, I always use two fifty or three hundred, and right. I recommend cut them to thirty two, and then go shorter if necessary. Okay. And for twenty three fifteens, yes, that would be a. a Great place to start, 31 with a 200. Okay, so hopefully that helps you, Chuck. Thanks for the great question. Mark Stockman's question is, uh, hi, oh, guys. yeah, he nope. did mention he's shooting 55 to 60 pounds. So, yeah, that's okay. all going to work. Good point. 
Mark Stockman, uh, is there a pin knock that fits ACC shafts? Uh, so that's your first question, and the answer is not exactly, but what you can do is you can, um, with certain size ACCs, the double zero sizes, which I'm sure are not what you're asking about here, um, they will take a, uh, a G-pin adapter uh, for the uh, ACE directly or for Carbon 1. Mm. Um, what you can do is you can take a Carbon 1 pin and you can put it in the unibushing. Now, your stacking tolerance is doing that, but they're pretty fine tolerances. So if you really are heart set on shooting a pin knock, that's a solution. Um, now, Mark says he currently shoots 30-inch ACCs with 29.5-inch draw length on a Hoyt Podium 40. He's not telling us um, much about the spine of the arrow, but uh, we're going to assume he's got the right spine. He wants to know how much shaft can he cut without changing the spine too much. Well, it's a compound, and uh, honestly, you can probably get away with more or less whatever you need to if you've got the right arrow. Even if it drives it to be slightly stiff, it's probably going to be okay. Yeah, so, I mean, where he says, how much can you cut before it changes the spine? I mean, you could probably cut an inch off, I would say, before yeah. it makes any drastic difference. Like most... I mean, it, it'll make a difference. Well, yeah, but I mean, the question is, is it enough of a difference that suddenly it's no longer... Shootable. Tunable. Yeah. Right? And I don't think it's going to be an issue. Yeah. I mean, I if mean, you're if you're shooting at a high level, and you'll see a difference. Like, if you're a 700-plus outdoor shooter, you'll, oh, yeah. you'll notice a difference between a half inch. Sure. Uh, you know, and... Or you might not, you know, you, you may not, but... Or it might pull it into the sweet spot and might make a group better. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you could see... Uh, significant or minimal difference but most most upper end shooters would be able to tell Um, let's go with that one inch as the answer to that question i think all right that works anything else on that no i'm just talking myself in circles no you're not (laughs) (laughs) Uh, david cousins not to be confused with dave cousins i'm sure yeah different 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 d cuz different cuz cousin dave uh what are your views on compound arch by the way i'd love to have him on the show David, Dave Cousins. Someday. Someday. Yeah, maybe. I would. I'd love to have him on the show. Can you imagine what fun that would be? be Real throwback. It would be fun. All right. So what are your views on compound archers shooting spin wing type veins? I currently shoot ACGs with XS wings, but have other compound archers telling me to get rid of the XS wings and replace them with an ordinary vein, saying they cause contact issues and don't work shot from a compound like they do shot from recurve, but I've had no problems so far with them. I've seen enough people struggle with those veins. Um, I, I think it really is more critical. I think it's you're closer to shooting a bear shaft with a vein like that than you are with a traditional vein. And I, like I said, I've seen enough people struggle, switch to a regular vein, and problems are solved. That's not to say I haven't seen people shoot extremely well and even beat me on occasion with a vein like that. So, you know, it'll work. It'll work. I do not think it's optimal, though. Well, all I can say is the first 1,400 score ever shot was shot with spin wings and a drop-away rest. And it was Clint Freeman. Mm-hmm. So that's that's simply to say that if you have the right type of rest, you can probably get anything to work. Right type of rest, and if you are really talented well tuned <laughs> i mean at that point your bear shaft tune does matter yeah and clint freeman was freaking really good back then really shooting well mm-hmm. so i'm not sure that they did him any favors or not but that is what he did use the point being that in the hands of a really supreme archer they can be made to work but i'm not sure they're doing any favors no i i don't see any advantage of them over a glue on vein but i do see disadvantages i've seen some recurve shooters shooting certain varieties of mylar veins. You know, not all mylar veins are equal. Right. Some mylar veins have a lot less initial drag, and some mylar veins have a lot less downrange drag. And um, let's just say that, you know, when it comes to mylar veins, uh, the optimal setup is still going to be a recurve and not necessarily all mylar veins working well for a recurve. Uh, some of them just don't have enough initial drag that are unforgiving. You made an analogy to shooting a bear shaft. I would say that's the case for some mylar veins. LE veins come to mind. I don't consider those to be particularly forgiving. So, uh, Jason Cullen, 
um, says he has a general archery question for us. How do we feel about the current ranking method that World Archery uses? Now, Jason comes from Ireland. They don't have an individual national ranking system. He's planning on setting something up this year, but would like some ideas on what to base the rankings off of. The WA version is a little too complicated for him to use here. Well, yeah, the WA version is complicated because it takes into account things like the status of the event. You know, there mm-hmm. are three or four categories of event, yep. all the way from local to international and stuff in between. Yeah. And then you've got a waiting, you know, um, W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, uh, a waiting scale depending on who shows up. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if a top-ranked shooter, say a Steve Anderson or uh, Kuban Chan, shows up, it becomes a higher-weighted tournament than if no top-ranked shooters show up, right? even if it's a world-ranking event. So, Yeah, you I'm, know. I'm not a fan of that, to be honest. Yeah, but we, what's we, the What's the most heavily-weighted event for world archery ranking? Is it the Olympics? No, I don't think so. I think the world championship gets more weighting. Okay. And I would say a world championship is not as difficult as a World Cup. World Cup 4 in Antalya has got to be the most difficult event. You know, I would say you're probably got a point. I you mean, get, the, the when most you consider who shows up, World Cup. when you consider who shows up. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Like last year's with, you know, 600 people, reserve oh, yeah. shooters, whatever it was. I mean, here's here's one. No one can argue with me on this one. A World Championships has three Koreans. A World Cup has four. It just got harder. Yeah, I won't argue that. So I, I've never been a fan of the world ranking system. I mean, it's uh, one, you have to go. You know, you have to be at the event. Someone want to tell me Jesse Broadwater's ranked uh, out of the top 10 in the world? Well, here's the reality. <laughs> you got to show up to be ranked. Right. You know darn well that, you know, there's shooters who are, ranked higher than they would be if certain people showed up but you know you you gotta you gotta be there to be ranked yeah and and what's the purpose of the ranking system as long as they're not using it right now they're not to determine whether somebody can go to the olympics or not right or something else along those lines yeah there's really nothing it's for the media it's for the media it's so that a media guy can look at that shooter and go well the number 16 ranked shooter in the world is about to step to the line yeah and and that's what that's for really it's, and for bragging rights within your own, you know, structure. You know, if you go to your NOC and you say, hey, I'm the number six ranked shooter in the world, that carries some weight mm-hmm. if you have something to back it up. And that's what WA has created. It's not like tennis, right? It's not like golf where you have some more of a structure, shall we say. Right. But uh, it's something. And we had to have something back when we had nothing. And that's what we got is better than nothing, I would say. Yeah. But, but let's answer. Let's try to answer Jason's uh, question. When we do the uh, national ranking system here, obviously what we have here in the United States, for example, is we've got a network of tournaments. And if you go to those tournaments and you um, finish at a certain level, you become ranked. So we have what we call our USAT, U.S. Archery Team Qualifying Tournaments. And there's a, a number of those. And then we have a number of other tournaments that go into that ranking including our usa outdoor nationals i think our indoor nationals do count now is that right toward no national rank no they do not nope okay but if you win indoor nationals don't you get a slot on usat um you get yeah you're technically on the usat team yeah which means you get like a jersey and some shorts well okay <laughs> you're salty today my friend no i'll just uh <laughs> tell it how it is Okay. All right. But so, but what do we do for Jason here? What's I, a good I, I just went and looked. Go ahead. Kim Woo Jin got a hundred points or excuse me, got eighty points for winning Copenhagen, for winning world championships. Kuban Chan got a hundred for winning the Olympics. The Olympics is the weakest field of any event that they that those guys will shoot all year. I won't I won't argue. It's weaker than any World Cup. I want to argue because at any given Olympics, there's only 16 shooters that are real, honest to goodness contenders. Yeah, it's in the men's and me. women's categories. So, yeah, whatever. All right. Can we help Jason out here? Do you have any ideas? I, you know, the USAT system is actually a pretty good system where it takes into account qualification and uh, head-to-head finish, uh-huh. and then you average them and blah blah blah. It's really. 
not a bad way of ranking it. There's, there's always, there's other things we do like arrow average that I think are terrible, but uh-huh. whatever. Although that's been adjusted. Has it not? No, apparently in the past, they adjusted it and then they just went back. We've had some stupid stuff happen in the past where you could literally make it to the finals of an event and you would have been better off going out in the one eighth because if the weather got bad and your scores came down, mm-hmm. even though you might have podiumed, yeah. it cost you ranking. Yeah, and that still exists. It's insane. It still exists. It's crazy. All right. Yep. Jason, I don't know if we have any direct help for you except look up what we're doing here in the US and It's a system. Know, yeah. Adjust as it's, necessary. It's one. All right. Ken Jr. Hey, guys. Thanks again for answering my questions last week about fletching and scope contact that wouldn't let me reach 90 yards. To answer Steve's questions, um, his peep pipe was three and three quarters. He's gone ahead and bumped that up to about four inches. Uh, therefore, he's lowered his anchor, I presume, and uh, hasn't had a chance to try anything heavier than a 300-grain arrow after the change. But he says so far, so good. So Yeah, three and three-quarter inch peep height isn't – I mean, Not a it's, ton. It's not a lot, but mine isn't four inches right. at my height. You know, Mine's about 3.95. So I still think it's something else. I would look at. Well, he did say about four inches. Yeah. I I would look at leveling, you know, checking the the leveling on your arrow rest and knock point and all that. It's getting the bow squared up, I would call it. All right. Matt Zolman, uh, following up on my comment of I've already made the X10 stiffer. Wasn't sure if I was stating if the X10s are inherently stiffer than ACEs, would that mean the next week our X10 spine would match the current ACE spine? Now, all I meant was that. you know, the uh, the X10-410 is equivalent to an ACE-430. And so there's an offset already built into the X10. That's all I meant by that. Uh, and he hopes to see us at next year's Buckeye Classic, which I understand was a great tournament. Yeah. Uh, our friend Sarah says that she'd like to hear from both of us about our first international competitions. So what surprised us? Hmm. My first one was Neem. I was, uh, I don't think I was surprised by anything, you know? I don't really, I guess I have to say my first real international competition was the Arizona Cup when it was really truly an international competition when you had 20-something countries show up. Right. Shot a team round with uh, with uh, an American guy and a Japanese guy. It was a mixed team, you know, not mixed, but, you know, a, a fun national- team fun team but not really a fun team because we were up against uh in the finals simon fairweather and don rabska and um hiroshi yamamoto so it was the open team event yes it was the Which open is, team event when they used to do that at arizona cup that that might have meant i mean there was a lot of trash talking going on usually ahead of that um yeah it wasn't contested like a normal team round like we were yelling stuff on the line, you know, trying to get in the other team's head. Well, this is when it was at ASU on a grass field with actual facilities. <laughs> and <laughs> I had to, I was the anchor for the team. I cut the last arrow loose. The arrow was just barely in the air when the light turned red. The arrow magically caught the 10 ring. And we won by like a point. Nice. And the reaction of one of the members of the other team is what surprised me the most. It was not positive. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah, that was that was a surprise. Um, what did we do right? Um, well, generally, for me, I would say that uh, just prepared properly by, by uh, shooting a lot of team rounds and shooting a lot of individual volume and, and having my head in the right place, you know? Yeah, I would say – Probably going with someone who had uh, been there and done it before. Yeah, you know, that I, helps a ton. At Neem, I, I roomed with Jesse Broadwater. So he had been there and done it before. When I, you know, when we arrived there at the hotel and we wanted to go to sleep, he made me stay awake and that helped. And, you know, stuff, little things like that that, that do matter when you're. Absolutely. Overseas. Like advice about how to deal with jet lag. Yeah. Or, you know, what to eat or where to eat, yeah. things like that. Um, what was tougher, negotiating the language, culture, getting around issues, or keeping up your usual game in a high-pressure scenario? I'd say keeping up your usual game. I mean, it's uh, overwhelming to a point, you know, especially if you're shooting well or if you feel like you can contest. Like at Neem, I expected to shoot around 590 and make the cut. You know, and I shot a 589 and made the cut. But the first half was a pretty good 296, and 
I remember they were during my line time, they were announcing, you know, top scores. And I don't think there was a ton of great scores, uh, after the first half. And, you know, you hear him, you hear him start rattling off names. And then when yours comes up with it, you're like, Oh, Oh man, I'm right there. You know? And, and Jesse and I were tied after that first half. And, um, at that point you have to stay within yourself. You can't, you can't get excited. You know, you're, and at the time I probably got a little excited and went ahead and missed one or two the next end. But now, you know, I've done it enough that I pretty much don't give a crap anymore. So just go shoot it. And when you're done with 60 arrows, they'll tell you, you know, sure. They'll, they'll tell you when you're done and when you can stop. So for me and in counting my, you know, my first serious, serious international tournament, I guess would be world field. Um, what surprised me the most was the fact that I actually exceeded my practice scores, um, and that I found it much easier to execute and that the more spectators and the more pressure, the better I shot, which was a surprise to me because I didn't know what to expect when that Mm -hmm. happened. And so, um, I kind of rose to the occasion, you know, I didn't go win the thing, but I, I shot better than I normally shoot. I think you can only ask for that in a, in a scenario like that. Right. Um, as far as language culture, getting around stuff, I've been traveling since I was about four years old. So for me, it wasn't a big problem. It wasn't a big challenge. Um, and keeping up my usual game, like I said, you know, it worked out okay. I, I guess I was in a good place mentally at that time. David Keough um, had some very nice things to say about the podcast. Thank you, David. High-speed photography has become commonplace. How long has Easton been using high-speed capture to analyze aeroflight during development. So uh, I can give a direct answer. Uh, the answer is since the late 1980s. We used high-speed film. We produced an actual video uh, in about 1991 that showed many shot sequences of launch of arrows off of various setups um, using super high-speed film. Uh, that was produced by Don Rabska at our lab in Van Nuys, California. But before that, you know, other people were doing this. Werner Beider. Uh, at the you know what became the Biter Center in uh, Germany, uh, Werner Biter I would credit as being one of the earlier people to do some serious high speed analysis. He did a lot of high speed video. You see some of that with uh, Jay Bars around 1988. Um, there are some Biter uh, DVDs that are still available today that show all sorts of things. And so I'd say Werner Biter pretty much uh, popularized the use of high speed film at the time because it wasn't really video. And then um, before that, you had what was called spark photography, which was uh, a high-speed technique that involved breaking uh, wires or plates with arrows and then setting off, uh, setting off a means of, of capturing the image of the arrow. And that's where it was really uh, identified back in the 1930s uh, by Dr. Klopsteg exactly what was going on with arrows when they were cycling out of a bow. So uh, high-speed photography is commonplace now, but uh, it's been used for a long time to analyze uh, arrow flight and departure from the bow. Um, he's saying that a certain other manufacturer has brought out 140 grain points. I think you're confusing that with us. <laughs> that's, that's us. Um, yeah, and he gets a someone, – someone posted a link in a yeah, reply to so, his comment. So. Anyway, um, he wants to know – he said he's seen a pro staffer pound the middle – but how much of that's talent versus the bow and arrows? Uh, it's 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 talent. You know the bow and arrows help, but you got to shoot the arrow. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I kind of dislike it when I see a headline that says uh, such and such arrow wins the Olympics or such and such uh, bow wins the this event. It's the shooter that won the event using that equipment, and I think that's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said. A good shooter will always see a difference in an equipment change, or will generally see a difference in an equipment change, positive but, or negative. Yeah, but it it may not be a lot, and it may not be enough for an intermediate level shooter to discern. So, yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, you know, you you see an awful lot of people uh, say that they picked up a bow and they shot five or six arrows out of it, and they could tell that uh, it wasn't better than the bow they're shooting now. Well, yeah, okay, but they're a 900 feet around shooter. Yeah, and please. You you can't <laughs> a bow is a lot harder to to judge than arrows. I mean, I can go set up two dozen different arrows, shoot them and 
within about 30 shots know which one is better. But to really understand a bow, I mean, you've got to spend some serious time with it, adjust it to the feel you like. You know, there's you don't just pick up a bow and go, oh, yeah, this one is better. But if a you, lot of people do. do. A that, lot of people you do. You didn't do yourself the service of actually figuring out how to set up that bow to your preference. I've seen it so many times, though. Yeah, and it's sad. Roland Deason, why do some compound bow companies use mods specific to a certain draw length, a small draw length range, example Hoyt Prevail, and some come with a wide draw length adjustment where you don't have to buy specific mods, example PSE Expression, mainly wondering the advantages or disadvantages of either system. So, Roland, the basic question, uh, the basic answer to your question has to do as much as anything else with what happens when a pro shop buys a bow and puts it on the shelf waiting for somebody with that exact draw length to come through the door. It's much easier for them to make an adjustment and make that bow fit the archer than it is for them to have every possible bit of inventory that would allow them to have a bow ready to go. You know, it's not like a shoe store. Mm -hmm. And that's on the consumer side. I mean, on the manufacturing side, it's straight up cheaper to do it. With a wider range. With one cam, one set of limbs, one string length. You know, Hoyt is doing on a Prevail five cams. So, and they don't have uh, a swinging mod, right? It's individual module pieces. So now they've got 15 or 16 mods and left and right. Yeah. So imagine just, how many parts start to proliferate. Yeah. PSC's got top and bottom, mod and mod, left and right. So now they've got eight parts. Hoyt's already at 16 in just modules for right hand. And then how many cams? So, so then you got five. So you've got twenty. You got forty-two parts for right and left hand. So then you go limbs, right? Each cam size requires a different limb deflection to get the right poundage. Each cam size requires different string and cable lengths. So custom. Yeah, it's the uh, bus cable is going to be different. Everything's different. It's much more made to order, much less mass produced. And the reality is, a draw length specific cam. Or which like the old Spiral X, everybody would probably remember those. Those were draw length specific, but they were on five base sizes. So they've got the same thing now, but with modules instead. Uh-huh. So this is the most efficient way to design for performance. Okay. So what what the other thing that you're going to see is an optimized four straw curve for right. each one of those. Yep. Whereas you are compromising aspects of the four straw curve when you make a wide adjustment on a draw length exactly. with a module. Yeah, so a company that's doing a swinging module is going to, they're going to build that somewhere around 29 or 30. It's inches. going to have an ideal spot. Yeah. Anything else is not going to be ideal. No, and it may feel like crap or it may lose a lot of performance. And we're not so. saying that PSC is this way. We're just saying that this is the general case with most of these types of, of, of compromises. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, purely a matter of, engineering yes so so it, it's a lot lot less time to do the one too I mean, it's they can fundamentally it's more it convenient out. for the manufacturer and it's more convenient for the archery dealer to have that swinging module as you put it it's not what the consumer should want i mean well it's it's not optimal for the consumer but it might save them some money it may like if you're a growing kid or something yeah. i mean if you're if you're me you want you want the ones going to give best performance. sure yeah and you wanna, if you're if you're another you know grown adult you don't plan on changing draw length drastically there's one way to go sterling schroeder one of our regulars why do compounds use release while recurves still use fingers i assume a release is more accurate as there's a smaller point of connection between the hand and string versus fingers is there a mechanical reason or is it just based on the governing rules for the sport uh it's basically yeah the rules don't allow uh anything but finger release for olympic recurve and the rules actually technically would allow you, I suppose, to shoot fingers with a compound, but you'd lose. Yeah, and I don't know about it, world archery, but I do believe in the NFAA you could shoot a recurve with a release in the compound class. Yeah, I think you can. I believe you are correct. And there was, uh, you know, back in the uh, back in the day, people did just that. In fact, the last person to win Vegas with a recurve in the pro class. It's our good friend, Jake Jacobson, Bob Jacobson from Jake's Archery, mm-hmm. who in 1974 won shooting a recurve bow and a release aid. He was, uh, you know, I shoot field archery with him on occasion. 
wonderful person. By yeah, way. he's what almost eighty, and you still gets it. up. He's probably the the guy who spends most time at that club volunteering, yeah. you know, digging holes and and he looks and acts like dirt in his fifties. Yeah. I mean, he's he's he he gets around better than a lot of people. He's awesome. He had some interesting stories talking about the when release aids were first coming out, and he was. Uh, just about kind of destroyed the sport for them. Just about sort. killed the sport of archery, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. In the United States. Maybe a story for a different time. But yeah, Bob Jacobson was the last guy to win Vegas in the pro class with a recurve bow shooting a release. So, Sterling, there is uh, there's no reason except for it's just not allowed in the rules. Um, Kafir Bihar, have you ever found Hoyt Tech risers to limit the ability to get the bow torque-tuned as the, uh, the tech web, the arc, Limits where the rest can be positioned. And what would you do if you were torque tuning a Hoyt and came to the conclusion the rest needs to be on the arc? I don't know. Yeah, Andy McDonald said in a reply to that, he said, you know, you can adjust your torque tune with the side extension instead. It does the same thing. Oh, yeah. And it does. If you don't want to move your side extension because you want it at a certain sight radius, um, then you're kind of screwed if it needs to be in that exact spot. I mean... I suppose there are different actual blade reach lengths with different versions of these rests, you know, like uh, I'm thinking of the, the rest with the overdraw or the extended mount. You've got the AE, you have uh, the biter and you have the uh, company out of New York that Mike LaPera's company, Brightside. Brightside. Um, and now I think Spot Hog is doing one too. And True uh, Trophy Taker used to have one. So I imagine one of those reaches around the bar and goes a little further forward or a little further back than others. So you probably have some options there. Or if you're handy, I mean, you could always uh, machine a little mount of your own that mounts to the blade mount and then has another blade mount as well. So All right. there, there are options. I don't think you'll run into the problem though. Uh, Matthew Walters, I know it's not target, but are the Deep Six XD and the Axis the same shaft, but just come with different inserts? Yes. Okay. Uh, Matt Douglas, shooting PSE Evolve 35 at 28.5 inches and 60 pounds. What spine and point weight would you suggest in a Super Drive 23? Hmm. I would say at that draw length, I mean, you could potentially go really stiff with a 325. I don't know how the Evolve tunes, so... I can't speak on that. If it tends to favor a stiffer arrow, go with the 325. Otherwise, use the 375 and somewhere between 100 and you know 140 grain point weight, and you'll be good. Like a 125 would do just fine, I'm yeah. sure. Okay. George Clark is thinking of getting some X10 Pro Tours and is wondering uh, if uh, we can help. Uh, I'm shooting a Hoyt Pro Comp Elite FX 25-inch draw, 55 pounds. He doesn't tell us his um, – oh, yes, he does. So 25-inch draw, 55 pounds, Pro Comp Elite FX. Probably like a 570. Yeah, maybe, yeah, with a 100-grain point. Yeah, yeah, you could run heavier if you want to. I'd go 100-grain point. That's what I would do too. Yeah, so hopefully that helps you out there, George. All right then. You know, um, you're headed, as you mentioned, tomorrow to Yankton, and uh, I thought this would be a good time for us to take a few minutes catch up with our friend Bruce Cull, president of the NFAA, and uh, get some heads up on both that event and what's happening with some other events. Well, hey, Bruce, thanks for joining us again on the podcast. Oh, you bet. Thanks for having me, George. So, Bruce, we've got a big event coming up, which is the last kind of transition event before the outdoor season, and yes. that's the, uh, the Dakota Classic. Absolutely. We're excited. How are we doing for turnout for that? You know, good. Um, that tournament, we just, um, you know, it's been all over the country. We started that in the Atlantic City shoot, um, and it's transformed into what now is um, an indoor and outdoor shoot, which is kind of fun and kind of a novelty. But um, we're going to have, you know, somewhere between three and 400 um, is, is what we're going to be at for this one. And it's um, kind of the final of our, you know, it's the final leg of our three-star tour, um, which includes Vegas, our national indoor, and then this one. And um, kind of fun. We do um, a considerably different format here. Um, you know, we shoot our NFA Classic 600 round, which is, um, you know, shooting at three different distances, the, the 40, 50, and 60 yards. And um, what we do is we, we shoot a qualification round indoors, 
And then if you make the cut, you stay indoor and go head-to-head till we ultimately have a champion. And if you don't make the cut, you go into a second-chance shoot, um, which is outdoor. Same distances, but on the outdoor field. So kind of a fun shoot, and um, everybody has a lot of fun at it. And depending on the weather, you might have a big incentive to stay indoors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, obviously, um, here in South Dakota, we've um, in the last week, we've seen 75 to 80 degrees, and we've seen 38 to 40 degrees. So... Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's definitely, um, you never know what's going to happen, but yeah. uh, the incentive is to shoot well. Well, you're not alone. Here in Salt Lake City, we had 75 degrees on Sunday, and I think we're going to see some snow this week. Yeah, so I know, I know. So it's that time of year. Yep, absolutely. So, no, we're, we're excited. It's it's a fun tournament. You know, the um, the, the biggest thing about the tournament, um, uh, you know, where it all came from, really, was that the, the three-star tour was designed um, so that everybody that shoots the first two legs gets qualified to shoot this last one for our big prize um that prize over the years has been a car and money and you know now what we've done is we've made it a ten thousand dollar shoot for the uh, pros and we've added a five thousand dollar pot for the amateurs so every single person of every age that shot the other two tournaments um is qualified to shoot off for that money so that's kind of fun so if i'm not mistaken that's actually fresh money for the amateurs Absolutely. Yep, it is. And it's something, you know, we um, uh, ran into, you know, wanting to just kind of change our format a little bit from the car. And, you know, we went through, I don't know, probably 12, 15 years of offering a car. And of course, nobody takes it because the money's more <laughs> more lucrative and people can usually use that. Um, yeah, if you think so about we, it, by the time you get done paying the taxes on the car, you're you're at around 10000 yeah, total exactly. value. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's kind of... You know, we just we kind of streamlined it and made it easier. But then we added, um, you know, we'd never had a an amateur win the um, you know the car shoot off, and so we thought, you know, we'll just put some money into that. And um, you know, our bread and butter is obviously the mass numbers of amateur shooters, so we'd pay something back to them. And um, it was fun. Last year was the first year we did it, and surprisingly, um, I, I'm going to call it a kid one. Um, a young man by the name of McClanahan, who's actually a South Dakota native, won the amateur, and um, you know took home five thousand dollars. And I think he's um, an eighteen-year-old kid. So but see, that's exactly that what neat. you want, isn't it? I mean, you really want. Here's the deal: Jesse Broadwater shows up at one of these things. Odds are he's going to win. You know. Oh yeah, you know, and it's interesting because we have about um, I think we have fifty pro men that are at this tournament, so it's a pretty good representation yet. But you know, last year a senior pro won it, Roger Willett. Um, yeah. So that was kind of neat. So, it, you know, it gives everybody... Um, you may call Roger a senior pro, but boy, I'll tell you, he's no slouch. I mean, you know, no, he's no, absolutely not. super effective what, on the World Cup circuit for the last few years. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, Roger's um, always a force to be reckoned with, no doubt. Yeah, but, he he, uh, he beats them with uh, wisdom and treachery, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, th- this shoot's, like I said, it's kind of a novelty shoot, but you really have to be good at a lot of things because... We start the thing at, at five yards or ten yards, something like that, and every, basically, if you tie the high score, you move back and get another arrow, and we move all the way back. And I, you know, I think that thing um, is usually one in the forty to fifty yard range, and the target we use for that is an old target that we made. We call the car target, and it's a multicolored, different colors than any other target, but the uh, the bullseye is super small. It's it's the size of an X ring. Um, you know, on our indoor target. So you start getting back to 30-plus yards, and it's an uh, interesting game, to say the least. Well, you can't even see that thing from past 30. Yeah. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, I've heard a lot of different techniques of um, just trying to center the whole target into, you know, to people's scopes, and, um, yeah, it's been, <laughs> it's been interesting, but um, that's, fu- that's fun. It's a, it's a lot of fun, and we have a big feed the Saturday night for everybody, and, um, you know, it's just kind of a, a little bit more laid back, and yet the competition gets pretty uh pretty hectic when they get into the head-to-head so tremendous hospitality fun. in uh, in a place like yankton you know especially it's not high season yet tourists haven't started to roll in for the fishing season and all that stuff right. so yep. it's, no, uh, it's yeah it works out well the uh, the community really accepts everybody well and of course you know the, the the actual name of the tournament being the first dakota classic um our first dakota national bank is who sponsors this and they've been a great supporter of everything we do you know even outside the area they they sponsor the vegas shoot yeah they're a vegas sponsor yeah yeah they've been really really great so um it's good to recognize them and you know to see all the people come in and have a good time doing it so in an ideal world bruce and Brittany and the rest of the hard-working staff at the nfa gets to take a breather after this but i'm i'm wrong aren't i yeah 
<laughs> yeah, in fact, um, we leave, I think, Wednesday for Reading. Um, you know, so that's uh, that comes right up. And then, then we have a, a little bit more of a breather after the Reading shoot. We've, um, you know, our next big event is our national outdoor championship, which is actually held here this summer, too, the, the last week of July. So let's recap. We've got some major events going on in Yankton in the next few years, starting with the World Indoor Championship. Correct. And, and that is 2018, and it's two days after Vegas. And, you know, it might very well be the very final World Indoor Championship with what's going on with the uh, Indoor World Cup. Yeah, they, you know, there's a lot of talk. Um, I've heard nothing official yet, but there's a lot of talk that um, they'd like to restructure the, you know, the, the World uh, Indoor uh, World Cup Series, I think, and... and and the possibilities there that they may try to do something with the World Indoor Championships. and um, Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure World Archery. I know is working on it. They have their World Congress, of course, this summer, and um, you know maybe something will come out of that. But You know, I suspect with the, with the relatively small-scale uh, efficiency of, of doing things in a place like Yankton that this won't apply, but I've seen some World Indoor Championships that cost as much to put on as a World Outdoor because of transport, security, things of that nature. Oh yeah, and you know we're um, we have some advantages, you know, being in a state like South Dakota. But um, there, there's disadvantages too, and you're exactly right. I mean, the um, the the none of these tournaments are um, you know anything that you'd really do as a business. Um, at least not in my opinion. You you can't make a a lot of money on them, if anything, and you feel really relieved if you only lose a little. So yeah, you know they're but they're um, you know I think they're great economic. Um, impacts for smaller communities, and that's something that works well for us. Um, oh, yeah, good point. You know, yeah, but but there, yeah, there are a lot of work and a lot of money. Yeah, no and, and that's the point. I think you know, with the amount of time and money that you have to put into one of these indoor events, it it seems like, at least on the surface, that uh, there's maybe better economic plan to be made from something like a, you know, an indoor circuit like the World Cup indoor circuit, where you have yeah. this, more or less the same venues and, and, and experienced staff over time and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, and, you know, I've tried to, um, I've talked with the World Archery people and added my opinion to some of the World Cup series, um, you know, and some format changes that I think would be something that may really drive that. I mean, if we had, if we end up with some type of a team event um, to incorporate in the World Cup series, um, I, I think then, that may be a good answer to that. And, you know, of course, having the championship in Vegas, the final, um, works out well. And, of course, when you're doing it at a venue like that, a lot of your expenses are definitely cut um, just because you're already there and you have the venue and everything ready. So, yeah, you're piggybacked onto another major event. Yep. And I think if they look at some, you know, earlier stage um, World Cups that, that, you know, I think there's some new announcements that'll be coming before too long of some new places in the world. And I think it should be great. I think it's um, it's a great thing to, you know, to be able to have people from all over the world participating in those. So who knows? Hopefully it'll be a good deal. Let me shift gears on you just a little bit, Bruce. Sure. Um, there's been a cooperation going on between USA Archery and the NFAA for quite a while. Um, and I think with the NFAA um, structure, um, and the USAA structure, um, we're seeing maybe a grand total of more than 35,000 participants because USAA oh, yeah. has 22,000. Some of those are also NFAA. But you know, by the time you count in the, uh, you know, the NFAA numbers, I mean, this is the largest number of participants registered to archery organizations in the United States, as far as I know, in history. Yeah. yeah they, you know, the, um, you're right. And, and, of course, history is kind of um, somewhat cloudy because there weren't great records kept and you know the difference just in information systems is yeah but i'll bet what, there weren't 30 something thousand yeah, members back in the it, 60s exactly i i think that the numbers are definitely um you know continuing going out every single tournament we've had this year um was up over last year and um you know the year before was the same so you know we've definitely got a lot of growth uh you know i know usa archery is doing some great things too so i think you know, and everybody that I've seen in organized archery is, um, you know, I, th I think doing the right things right now. I think that we're we're trying to look at our customers and, and give them what they want, and I think it's been good. I mean, archery has definitely um, changed in the last four or five years, so all for the best. The press release just came out last week that our good friend Rod Menzer has been appointed the uh, marketing manager for USA Archery, so... Um, oh, great. You know, there's a guy who's dialed in and, and knows what he's doing. So that'll be you really, bet. 
very positive move. I, I, what I'm leading up to is what we talked about a couple podcasts ago, which is the growth that you're seeing at your events. Uh, you had 2,000 people in, in, um, in Cincinnati this year. You had almost uh, 3,500 in Vegas. Yep. We could be looking at 4,000 in Vegas in the next few years if this continues. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, our, our Vegas growth has been double-digit percentages um, the last five years. And, you know, we, we don't really see um, an end to that. Um, once again, we don't have a way to forecast that very well either. I think a lot of it is just sheer, you know, customer based upon what we're offering and what the archers like. And that's what we've tried to, you know, target. And, um, you know, I think, I think the Vegas shoot, without a doubt, is, as we've talked before, I think it's been referred to as several things, but the best analogy is probably the Super Bowl of archery. Um, but yet, it's also a festival. I mean, you know, the whole idea of people being able to come and, and do all the, the neat things there are to do in Vegas, non-archery related, you know, just adds to it. And it's, you know, I, I think it's the one event that if, um, if, if people have to make a decision, they're not going to miss Vegas. You know, that's the one that they just have the most fun at, and, and they basically plan that annually, and, you know, it's the camaraderie part of it. It's, it's just everything all put together. Yeah, and that's regardless of what's going on with the economy and that kind of thing, it seems. Yeah. Um, the other thing we're seeing is a lot of growth from, um, from visitors from overseas. Yes. And, you know, a lot of, uh, I think you had 50-something countries at Vegas. Yes, and, and you know, that's... Um, yeah, I think it was just right at 50, which is is an incredible thing. And, we, you know, ironically, the last two years, the Vegas shoot, um, I think it's been the last two, has been won by a, a foreign, you know, in the in the big open division, yeah. which is good to see. I think that, that shows that, you know, that there's more competition. The, the level of the bar has been set higher. Um, there's more people coming, and I think that's just great. You know, the, the other thing, we've noticed a big increase in Vegas. Well, you know, it, it's really been pretty even. Uh, as far as the growth all the way across the board, but um, I mean, we've seen we've seen divisions like our seniors grow, our barebow division grow, which I haven't seen growth in in, in the barebow division in ten years. So that's great to see. But then the really, you know, I, I think where we really see a big growth is is just overall like the flight division. It's the people that are coming just for the crapshoot that Vegas is. You know, you can go in and have fun, shoot your best. It's competitive, of course, but it's the crapshoot to where you fall to what you win. And I think that's what really has added the appeal. Um, you know, and that that's the bulk of our shooters. So I, I think that's great to see because people, once again, are coming, you know, for all the different aspects. And then when you get into the kids, they're, all, they're almost their own tournament alone now. Um, with the great scholarships we give between the Easton Foundation and the NFA Foundation, I mean, you know, we're giving $25,000 away every year, you know, to those kids' divisions. And that's just been a great impetus, you know, to get the, the kids out there. I mean, it's it's amazing to see that. No doubt about that. And the other fortunate thing, and I, I know that only good fortune comes with good planning, but uh, with the venue you've got, you have space now for these people if, if you do see that kind of growth curve. Oh, yes, absolutely. We can... Um, you know, we can add um, a good thousand people yet um, in our venue and, and maybe even possibly more without changing much of the structure. Um, I know that we are working on, we've got some planning meetings coming up in the next 60 days where we're going to be uh, speaking with our core staff, of course, and, and some of the sponsors and vendors and getting some opinions. But we're looking at some, you know, some small changes that may end up being big for the Vegas shoot uh, for next year. And, um you know, we just we're just trying to address everything that can possibly come at us. So, you know, we're excited about that, and, and the growth is a great thing. Uh, not to put you uh, not to put you on the spot, but of course I will. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Fifty one thousand dollars got paid out um, as the first place prize for the premier category, which is the uh, open category uh, yep. last year. Do you think we'll see an increase? Um, you know, the plan as of right now is that next year will be fifty two thousand. So. That's kind of what we had put in the books, and you know th that division. It's 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 interesting to see you know the whole logistics and, and the the financials and the administrative part of a, of the Vegas shoot. I mean, it's a monster of its own, so to speak. But um, you know the the big pro division is is really that division to help us advertise that we are the biggest shoot in the world. And of course, that division you know doesn't make any money. Um, and and when it comes right down to it, um, we subsidize a lot of it with 
you know, other sources of income from the shoot. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's very important that we still are able to say that, you know, it's the largest payout, um, the, the whole payout for the entire Vegas shoot is the largest, and, you know, the whole crap shoot plus the best of the world and the Super Bowl of archery all incorporated just makes it what it is. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to increase again, so... Hopefully that'll be good for everybody. All right. Well, I'm, I'm expecting that, uh, you know, as, as we get closer to Vegas, we'll be talking about that more. Maybe oh, as yeah. you're ready to reveal some of your tweaks to Vegas, we'll talk about that in, in the next few months. And uh, Bruce, as always, I always appreciate your time and, and your just tremendous dedication to our sport. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me, George. And um, hopefully we'll see everybody this coming weekend. NFAA President Bruce Cull on the Easton Podcast. It is mind-boggling, the thought of 4,000 people in Vegas, but then again, uh, who would have thought we'd have 3,400? Did you say mind-boggling or mind-bottling? Mind-boggling. I'm going to go with bottling from now on. Okay. Yeah. It's My mind. mind is in a bottle right now. Uh-huh. All right. So you're getting ready to go to Yankton. What do you, uh, what's on your packing list when you're going on a trip like this? Because you could be shooting outdoors or indoors or both. Uh, I'll be shooting indoors. Okay. So... Yeah, I mean, I I don't I haven't looked at the weather to know if I need to. But since you're going to be indoors, it doesn't yeah, matter I'm not as super much. concerned. Like the amount of time between the car and the. Did you decide range. where you're going to fly into? Flying into Omaha. Omaha. Yeah, Omaha, and it's about two and a half, three hours to Yankton from there. That's manageable. Yeah, it's a direct flight to Omaha, so it's doable. But yeah. I get in at like eleven thirty, so I'll stay the night in Omaha, and then jet you get in at eleven thirty p.m. p.m. Yeah, so. And you know, I didn't, I didn't know what day I would be shooting. So some people shoot Friday, some Saturday. So I, I didn't know for sure what day I'd shoot. I didn't want to get in Thursday night and have to drive in Friday. I wanted to be there Thursday to at least practice a little bit. So went with the uh, Wednesday evening tickets, as they were about two hundred bucks cheaper than the Thursday morning tickets. Now you're using the same setup for this event as you're planning to use for Reading. Is that correct? Yep. I'm. Yeah, so it's, what, Tuesday today? I leave tomorrow. I uh, don't quite have the bow built yet. So <laughs> so general terms, tell us what the what's the build, what's in the bow. Um, so I'll use you know same Prevail 40, but this one will be, um, I'm trying to think. It'll be maybe a touch heavier in poundage just because that's how it came out. Now you've made some adjustments to your Contour CS stabilizer setup. Uh, yeah, I use a Z flex. Okay. Z flex, but, um, yeah, I'll go with a 12 on the back and swing it in a little, little tighter so that I'm not swinging, uh, the bow away when going uphill, you know? Okay. So uphill or downhill. This is Redding doesn't have a ton of steep shots, but there's enough uphill shots. If you don't know what you're doing, you could, uh, and you had the sidebar way out and you didn't torque the bow back. I mean, you physically have to torque the bow back at that point. And if you don't, you could miss one left or right. Well, that would be no bueno. Not no. at 100 yards. No. So, well, 100 is pretty dead flat. So Now, what's your plan for after Redding? Um, you know, uh, you got Shanghai coming up relatively quickly after that. Yeah. What, um, what are you going to do? Go back to your other setup? Or? <clears throat> yep. I'll go back to shooting my silver bow. And same one I've been shooting all year. It's been good outdoors, so I don't feel like I need to make any adjustments. And for anyone wondering... My outdoor tuning consisted of uh, moving my rest blade up, changing to a narrow blade, winning NFAA Indoor Nationals, and then sighting in for 50 meters. Without a 30-page archery talk thread on whether yeah. you should be doing uh, what was what was that all about? Oh, about bear shaft tuning. Oh, yeah. you know what that really was about? I think was that there's a guy selling bear shaft tuning to people. He's yeah. one of these. He's, he's one of these. Up their send me your bow and I'll tune it and I'll send it back to you, <laughs> which is just. The same it's old mind story that's it's mind bottling. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So, um, so that was the, the extent of tuning I did and then proceeded to shoot a seven, like ten, my first outdoor seven, ten. There was yeah. like eight pages of Sturm and Drang over this whole thing. Ten by the end of it. Ten pages. I saw. Yeah, it was good. I gave up after eight. So it was, it was insane. All these um, people arguing about what Steve Anderson does. It was yeah, great. Whatever. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I'll shoot that one in Shanghai. And then uh. we come back, and this is where it gets interesting. I come back from Shanghai, which really means I come back from Japan. I get home on like a Wednesday. 
Thursday, I turn around and fly out to Gator Cup for uh, Gator Cup and our the part two of our world team trials. So it's a pretty important tournament. So I'm going to have to hope I can get some shooting in while I'm in Japan, get a little practice at least, um, which I think I will. I think Phil has me slotted to shoot with some of their guys. I'm sure that you'll get to one of the many ranges around Tokyo. Yep. So There's plenty of places to practice. But Then uh, we come back from Gator Cup on like a – Tuesday or whatever. You don't know what hotel they got you in in Tokyo, do you? Jeff said we're getting a big one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all relative, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're getting the biggest one they offer. It's all relative. <laughs> so you, you're going to be like walking around like Godzilla. Yeah. If you I, see little kids pointing up at you and go, Gojira, Gojira, you're going to know why. Well, we're getting one with an American name, a hotel. Oh, you know? like a Hyatt? Yeah. I think so. Get something, out. Something. Uh, oh, they're going big budget for your trip. Well, it's like yeah. See, I always stay in business hotels when I go to Tokyo, which are what like hundred bucks a night or so. Yeah, hundred, hundred fifty. Yeah, so this one's like two hundred. Yeah, but it's Jeff and I, so uh-huh. we aren't fitting in in one of those business hotels. Uh huh. Well, my Jeff, bouquet Jeff might would. not fit. Jeff would fit. Yeah, Jeff. Jeff would be fine. Not with me. I I've stayed in a room that was literally the size of my closet at home. How about those ones where you, you climb in, you push the button, and it... Oh, Capsule Hotel. It, yeah, it puts you inside the Never thing. had to do that. Yeah. Haven't had to do one of those. <laughs> You're going to love it. Yeah. So, so. it'll be... Yeah. Well, straight right. from there, like I said, we get home Tuesday, or I get home from Gator Cup Tuesday, and Thursday, I'll have Wednesday to get my feet a field bow ready, and maybe part of Thursday as well. Thursday, leave for... USA Field Nationals. Go straight from there. On, Which is in Darrington. Yeah, in Washington. So on Monday, I'll drive back to Seattle and draw, and fly to uh, Frankfurt. So that'll be a Tuesday arrival. And you're Get going on the to plane. shoot that uh, Pro Series? No. What are you doing? Flying from Frankfurt to Antalya for Antalya. Oh, for the first, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then we get back from Antalya on, what, a Monday, and then have a weekend and then we're right here in salt lake for the world cup in salt lake city yeah and then i think after salt lake it slows down there's for a little a bit of weeks. a little recovery time yeah i think my next one after that is luxembourg for the pro series there you go at least that's what i'm hopeful of i don't oh, this like one thing after another. we aren't even to may and i'm already talking about my my break in early july yeah and it's it's just another another crazy season ahead looking forward to it Anyway, all right. Well, hopefully that answers the questions for everybody. Given Steve's schedule, we may be talking to him on the phone next time we do a podcast. Could be. (laughs) All righty. So that will just about settle things for this episode. We'll look forward to everybody's uh, questions and comments. Please remember to uh, uh, give us a review. Whether you like the show or hate the show or feel indifferent about it, reviews are compare us to Genghis Khan. Uh, I saw that one. Yeah, that we, was, we read that on the. That was an awesome review we that we that got on, on iTunes the, uh, on the podcast. That on iTunes the, review was awesome. You know, I, I got a little bit of admonishment from our friend in Finland. That um, was Sammy, uh, who said, "You know, every country that has iTunes has its own store, and there's reviews on all of those." Well, so I checked, and there were like three among all the other countries. So not that many. But um, the more reviews, the more it is easy for people to find the show. So, Do you use Yelp? No. Do you use Amazon? I bought something from Amazon yesterday. Do you review stuff on Amazon? Rarely. I, I never have. I'm a... I w- once in five years, maybe? lack any contribution to the online commerce society all Mm. i do is take i do not give Uh uh-huh it's bad but i think most people who are motivated to do a review on amazon either had a bad experience and therefore they're angry and they're they're going to let everybody know about their bad experience Mm -hmm. or they're i don't know they've got some other motivation for for getting on there and saying something positive yeah i mean if i look at a at a review and i see 100 reviews 95 or five stars. And I'm not statistically, letting the, yeah, there's probably like five one stars involved there. There's definitely not a two star. There's never been a two star. You notice that, yeah. And maybe there's a three or a four. Yeah. 
you know, and the four is you got to you got re- to read them. Someone will be like, well, this product is great. Everything is awesome. Um, I am a little disappointed in that the included batteries didn't last as long. You're like, get, get the hell out of here. Buy some Duracells, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Like, yeah. You gave it you gave the product a four star review because uh, an add on accessory, which was included, wasn't to your standards. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, you know, the thing is people are, I was reading a thread on the, on a British archery forum the other day and it was a guy and, and the title of the thread is something along the lines of, and I, I'm not going to be too direct about this, but I'll be direct enough. He said, broken bow, not taken care of by retailer, broken bow. Okay. So he shows a picture and it's some paint chipping off the edge of the limb. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it's a recurve bow. And he goes on for like three pages of, of invective, you know, about how horrible this, this retailer that he bought the bow from is because they won't immediately refund his money and, and blah, 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 no, no, no. And he makes the comment again, broken bow. You know, when my bow broke, no, no, no. Your bow didn't break, your paint chipped. Your paint chipped. And, and, and I'm sorry that your paint, it's not a Hoyt, by the way. I'm sorry your paint chipped. That shouldn't yeah. happen. Yeah. You know, yeah. but the third-party company that made this bow... It's not broken. It's got a paint chip. I mean, come on. And who's to say he didn't chip it himself? Well, that's yeah. Possibility Who knows? exists. I don't I don't uh I don't know. I don't put a lot of weight into negative reviews. Well what was interesting was the guy had told the retailer he was going to go on the archery discussion forum, whatever, and reveal this and and, and complain about it. There's something else going on. Yeah. Always is. There's always a backstory. Yeah, pretty much. You know? I'm like, you know what I like to read on occasion is Google reviews because I read one about a uh, building supply company, right? I'm buying some trim for the inside of the house and someone went on there and, and yeah, there's, there's three reviews on this company and two of them are five stars and one is a one star. And the guy in his review said something that was kind of off about this company. You know, he, he listed the name of the company but then something that I don't know if they deal that type of product and uh, his review wasn't all encompassing. Right. So the, uh, and his name, his name was on there. So the company went on and replied, we've never done business with anybody named blah, 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 you know? And, and they said, please clarify your review or call us or take it down. And of course, once the guy left the review, he was done. Sure. Yeah, he's not going to follow up. It's a drive-by. Yeah. So he had mistakenly reviewed the wrong place, and now they're screwed because of it. People scrolling through will go, oh, they only have, you know, three-and-a-half-star average. Well, you notice if you look at the Easton um, webpage, our company has a 4.9 out of 5, and somebody had left a one-star review but complimented us. So that oh, they, yeah. They yeah. clicked on the wrong star. Yeah, people. Yeah, that's the other side of these things. We should be able to submit that for review. Well, we should be able to review their review because we want a five point oh. <laughs> Maybe, anyway. All right, I this? think you're looking it up. I'm looking it up. All right. Meanwhile, oh, it's oh, never mind. I won't say anything. Yeah, don't say anything. <laughs> but but there it is. That's why we have a four point nine instead of a five point oh, and and that stuff happens. People hit the wrong buttons. Whatever it happens. Our podcast so far has a clean set of reviews, so I'm sure that's going to change, especially after people have listened to the last five minutes. Yeah, we have, we've talked about nothing useful. Yes, and therefore, I would say it's time for... End of show. End of show. <laughs>